welcome to a grad chat. This is your opportunity to find out about graduate research and experiences here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I am your host for this week's grad chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC. So thank you very much to both of them. Today, though, I would like to introduce you to Claire Lee and Stefan Kukkonen, who are both doing a Master of Planning under the supervision of Dr. A.G. Agarwal and Dr. Patricia Collins, respectively. Welcome to Grad Chat. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. You know, I'm, I'm going to dob you both in. Uh, we did actually try and record this earlier. And unfortunately, Stefan, I'm going to make you the scapegoat here. Unfortunately, Stefan, we were in the middle of it and his building, the power went out. <laughs> so, so, and I didn't, I didn't notice straight away. So here we were talking, you know, uh, Claire and I were talking away and then realised we had no Stefan anymore. So uh, we, we're giving it another crack, as we say, take two. And I'm sure this this time we, we're going to be able to complete the full session. So I'm looking forward to it. So sorry about dobbing you in there, Stefan. Oh, that's all right. My fingers are crossed. <laughs> Luckily, we didn't do a live show. <laughs> <laughs> Although, like I said, Claire and I were having a good old chat, um, but this, these things happen. So I guess what I should do, though, is uh, as you can everyone can tell we're not actually in the studio this week we are doing this remotely so with that in mind where are you both from are you actually in Kingston or are you somewhere else yeah I'm actually calling from Kingston right now last week I was in Victoria um, <laughs> so I've been, yeah I'm living in Victoria right now and I've been there since May but I just came back to Kingston to move all my stuff back and bring something right. back to DC with me and I'm sure you're doing all the right things because um, with, with all the move-ins and everything. Yeah, yeah, definitely trying to be safe and wearing a mask everywhere and trying to keep distance from people. So it's been it's been a challenge, but it's been good. That's good because I know carrying the mask is wherever I've got a pocket now, I've got a mask in it just in case, depending if, if I do go out and about, as they say, here in Canada. And what about you, Stefan? Um, yeah, I've been in Kingston since uh, the start of the pandemic, basically. And uh, which actually ended up working out well because my project has been Kingston based. So it was the perfect opportunity for me. That certainly helps, doesn't it? And you're very lucky that you're able to do that because, as we know, there's been some students over the summer who had to cancel their field trips to help with their research, which was unfortunate. But hopefully they'll still get an opportunity to do that, even though it might be a slightly, slightly changed research project. So before we ask you about your particular research projects, both of you, can you tell me why you wanted to pursue a degree in urban and regional planning? Um, I did my undergrad in geography at the University of Victoria. And while I did my studies there, I did a field school in Europe and I became really interested in city planning and kind of how different cities function, like what makes a city successful or not. Um, right kind of was able to identify that interest later in my degree and decided that urban planning was the master's that I wanted to pursue. And then Queen's just ended up being a great fit for what I wanted to study. And it's great to have that focus on cities, but still looking at regional issues as well and looking at um, issues across Canada. So it's pretty interesting. That's fantastic. And what about you, Stefan? Um, yeah, so I did my undergraduate re uh, studies in human kinetics, which is sort of a kinesiology type deal. And as you can tell, that's 
a pretty big shift into urban planning. <laughs> it is. <laughs> but really, the, the thing that stood out to me was um, I had this one course where we looked into active transportation and how that revolves, it deals a lot with planning and getting people up and out and about. And that was really my first draw into planning. And then I was really attracted by that. And then also how planners can hopefully make cities a better place for those living, uh, people living in them. And in terms of equity and um, in terms of everybody feeling comfortable and happy with where they're living. So those were the main draws for me. Well, I guess also for you, Stefan, having done human kinetics, also looking at spaces for recreation and things as part of urban planning. Yes, absolutely. And uh, it's very lucky that uh, this project that I was actually working on has some very nice tie-ins with that. That's excellent. So it's interesting, actually, because one of the reasons I wanted both Claire and Stefan to come onto the show is that I saw an article in the Queen's Gazette back in August called Redesigning Canada for Physical Distancing and COVID-19. Now, that article talked about the impact of COVID-19 on cities and towns and how urban planners could provide insight to cities and towns on on ways to actually reopen their towns as safely as possible, which, of course, everyone's trying to do right now. Now, Claire and Stefan were identified as being part of that project. So because of that, I thought, you know, good opportunity to bring them both in onto the show and let's have a little chat about what that project was all about or some of that work that they were doing was all about. So what were your actual roles in this project that Dr. Melagrano put forward and was being interviewed himself about. Yeah, so initially we had a few meetings to kind of brainstorm what kind of areas we were focused, wanted to focus on. Kind of quickly identified that I was going to be working with Dr. Ajay Agarwal and we were going to look at public transportation and the right. impact of that on, um, on the impact of COVID on, on public transportation um, and kind of take it from more of a research focus and did a lot of like a literature review and kind of scanning news articles, whereas um, Stefan can speak to what he was working on with Dr. Collins. Yeah, so at the same time that we got brought on as project assistants, in Kingston we had this project separate from Queen's, but I was brought in to help work on it um, as the Queen's side, where uh, Kingston wanted to create these things called quiet streets. So I was uh, working on that with the Kingston Coalition for Active Transportation to help establish these quiet streets in Kingston. That's awesome. So two totally different topics there, but it's actually quite interesting that you've been able to be a part of that. Yeah, definitely. Very different. Well, I, well, I guess that, that's a great segue to actually finding out a little bit more about that research project each of you are doing. So maybe, Claire, you can go first. And so your area, is, as you mentioned, was in public transportation, COVID-19 response and recovery. So can you give us a bit of an over, bit more of an overview on that? And then I do actually have a couple of questions I want to ask you. Yeah, for sure. We were like really interested in looking at how public transportation was affected by the pandemic. Um, obviously, as soon as things shut down and people started working from home, schools shut down, people were kind of ordered to stay in place. So during like March and April, public transit ridership fell by 50 to 90 percent in most Canadian cities and towns. Um, right. People weren't moving around the same way. And if they were, they were driving or walking and generally trying to avoid these like crowded public areas like buses and subways. 
So that's kind of where our interests first started. We wanted to look at the challenges and opportunities for recovering public transit in this like intermediate period where we're recovering from COVID um, and looking towards the future as well. But still recognizing that transit's an essential service and it's been really vital for moving our essential workers through cities and getting to work and to do essential trips. And kind right. of understanding that not everyone has access to a car or a private vehicle. So it's been really integral to maintain that basic level of service. So when you talk about you looked at different cities, what cities around the country did you look at? Because there's very difference between uh, something like a Toronto or, or Montreal compared to even Kingston. Yeah, yeah, for sure. We actually kind of started with a bit of an international focus. So we did a survey of um, countries cities in Asia and Europe to kind of see what they were doing because it's interesting to see like cities in China were at an earlier progression of COVID so they were kind of doing things way before the cities in Canada were so we were trying to learn from what other places had done and then our research kind of focused on the bigger cities in Canada just because there's more information to pull from. Mm -hmm. Um, We did look at some smaller agencies as well to see kind of how these local buses were responding and places where they might not have a subway or light rail seeing what they were doing. Um, So we kind of did a broad survey, but definitely focused on major cities for sure. And so then how has the COVID-19 pandemic changed in urban transport, can't even say the word, urban transportation? And I guess now I'm talking about both public and active transportation. Yeah, it's definitely changed how public transit operates. Because when you think about the basic premise of public transportation is having moving many people at once and that's the most economically efficient way to do it but obviously right now we don't want to have full buses and crowded subways it's just not a great way to prevent the spread of disease so a lot of agencies have kind of had to adapt their capacity a lot of places are mandating that only 50% capacity on board having physical dividers or plexiglass to separate the drivers from passengers and kind of modifying service so that it's as safe as possible but still re- retaining some level of comfort and security for riders that need to take the bus and transit. It's interesting, actually, because when the pandemic first hit, I was still catching the Kingston buses yeah. for a little while. And, of course, you could only get on the back half of the bus because it had taped off to protect the, the bus driver, which I was then thinking, well, there's not a lot of space in the back here. So, you know, this Things like, and I don't know if it's changed since because I haven't been on a, a bus since. I don't know if they've opened up a few more area, a bit more space, like you said, maybe with plexiglass to help protect the the driver. But as part of your study, does it also look on the economic impact on the transport system? Because it's great that we still got this public transport, but it must be costing those departments a lot of money to keep them going. Yeah, definitely. So most like public transit agencies in Canada are are partly funded by the government as well. So having that support has been vital. And I know a lot of major cities were kind of calling on more federal funding during the pandemic. Um, Agencies like the Toronto Transit Commission were saying that they'd have to cut service. I think it might've been by up to 50% if they didn't get additional funding. So kind of recognizing that they're not gonna have that same ferry box recovery. So people paying their fares is not gonna be the same as it was before during these times. being able to maintain basic service while still not um, going into debt has been a major issue for sure. And I guess the other question is, is how long can both the cities and um, the various government levels can, like you said, keep the support going? 
Yeah, yeah. And I guess, like, as it goes on, like, some ridership has rebounded. Like, I know in Vancouver, I think they might be up to 70% of regular service. So, like, early on, nobody was traveling anywhere. But now as schools are opening up for children, people are going back to work in some cases. There definitely is higher ridership levels than there were in March or April, per se. So kind of like adjusting to these flows of customer demand while still keeping the service running. So uh, is there anything anything else the public transportation agencies are doing to respond to the pandemic? I mean, you know, what kind of strategies are being employed for recovery planning? Because it's all very well saying maybe we need to increase the number of buses, but there still comes down, you know, the health side of things. Are the buses clean enough each time they go out on a, on a run? That kind of thing. So it's a, have you seen any sort of strategy, other sort of strategies in place? Yeah, for sure. So another one of the big things is mandating face coverings. Different municipalities right. have kind of been at different stages in this. Ottawa was the first Canadian municipality to make it mandatory on public transit, and that was on June 15th, whereas Vancouver didn't make it mandatory until August 24th. But I'm pretty sure most, if not all, agencies now require uh, passengers to wear a face covering. So that's been a big thing in, in um, being able to have more people on the buses and, and having it in a safe right. manner is having face coverings. Um, definitely upping cleaning as well. A lot of agencies have kind of doubled down on what they would normally do to clean the buses and really focusing on sanitizing as well, making sure customers have access to hand sanitizer and that all these like high touch surfaces are being cleaned rapidly has been really important. And just kind of making people more aware of like what the new restrictions are and what the passenger etiquette is. There's been a lot of like public health campaigns kind of in line with public health, but also the agencies are doing it themselves. So trying to encourage people to take these steps to make sure that they're taking transit in a safe manner to make sure that others are safe as well. This is probably a bit of a sideway question, but I know in a lot of cities they have those areas where you can drop your car in a parking lot and then there's there's buses and things or trains yeah, that then they can, yeah, the park and ride. Has any of that been affected? I haven't actually looked into that. I'm not entirely sure how that would be impacted. So okay. you can't speak to that. I, I know it's just one of those little side things I thought of. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The only reason I ask about that, because I know in terms of planning, you know, part of urban planning is one of them, I would imagine, is how to keep transport out of the major busy cities and have more people commuting using public transport. Yeah. So there is this fear that the pandemic will make people drive more and be wary of taking public transit. So it's really important that public transit agencies are trying to reassure that they're doing as much as they can. Um, Mm -hmm. Kind of looking at the impacts, if everyone everyone that was on transit switched to driving, the congestion, pollution, traffic safety, those impacts could be just as bad as the spread of disease from COVID on the planet. So it's kind of like outweighing the pros and cons of driving, taking public transit and having higher vehicles on the street and yeah, there are a lot of pros and cons all the time, aren't there? Just yeah. when you think you've got it, you sold, and you think of something else. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Uh, Stefan, let's go on to your project. Uh, and you're researching, you know, implementing, as you said, the Quiet Streets pilot in Kingston. So can you give us a bit of an overview of that? Yes, absolutely. So the whole idea of Quiet Streets sort of emerged as the pandemic progressed. People were sort of feeling trapped in their houses and um, they wanted to get outside to enjoy sort of some positive experiences rather than just 
sticking to the confines of their own home. And as more and more people flooded to these public spaces, they became uh, overcrowded. So what some municipalities did in response to this was plan to open up streets and really give priority to uh, people using more active forms of transportation, um, walking, bicycling, skateboarding, that sort of thing. So that's how it originated. I believe Oakland was the first city to actually implement it. And then as it progressed, uh, the city of Kingston wanted to hop on this sort of train and uh, create some additional open space for um, the residents here. And, and you're talking more about, Stefan, like the, the neighbourhoods. It's not necessarily like the downtowns when like the city of Kingston blocks off Princess Street and, and some weekends so we can just walk down. You're talking more about in the suburbs. Uh, yes, that's correct. We've seen it in the suburbs. We have also seen it in downtown neighbourhoods. It really depends on the municipality and where they think that there will be a, a demand for it. But in general, municipalities are trying to do as much as they can uh, blocking off or creating shared spaces between vehicles and cars, or sorry, between cars and pedestrians as much as they can throughout their cities. So you were you were doing this project with Dr. Patricia Collins and also a group called the Kingston Coalition for Active Transportation Group. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And how did they come together? Was it purely because they had this thought? Um, absolutely. So Dr. Collins is a member of the Kingston Coalition for Active Transportation, and they approached Kingston City Council to introduce this idea to them. And the Kingston City Council was on board with the stipulation that the Kingston Coalition for Active Transportation would be solely responsible to implement these quiet streets in Kingston. And so they were left with the responsibility to unveil these quiet streets in Kingston which is completely unique um, in North America. We are the only municipality where a volunteer organization took the lead on such a project. So that's a little interesting, to say the least. Um, so, so how do you do that? Do you go door knocking in neighbourhoods and say, would you like your street blocked off? Yeah, so the um, process was we had a list of criteria from the city on which streets would be eligible off the bat. So things like busy streets, they're known in urban planning as collector streets or arterial streets, they would not be eligible. We're really looking for streets that are already fairly quiet. They could not have any um, rampant cut through traffic or aggressive driving known to be in that area. And they could not be routes that were used for ambulances or uh, fire trucks. And as well, they could not be on bus routes because then the buses would have to navigate these obstacles and it would just be too challenging. So with that in mind, we went about selecting routes or proposing routes that would be able to connect to key destinations such as downtown or local, uh, other local grocery stores, that sort of thing. So people could walk to the grocery store to get what they need or cycle there. And then we also wanted to connect with parks and initially, we also wanted to connect with the other trails found around Kingston, such as the K&P Trail and the new Leroy Grant Trail. But unfortunately, right. we had to uh, shift away from that just because it is a pilot project. Hopefully in the future, we could do that. <laughs> well, I must admit, I've seen, I've seen one of them because there's one just behind Queen's 
well, I think it was Earl Street going up towards, uh, going past the KCVI um, and heading west. And I must admit, I, I, I got to it and I went, oh, what's this? <laughs> so I was driving, driving my little Vespa along, see, trying to, trying to do well, not going in a car, driving my little Vespa. And I went, oh, am I allowed in there? And I had to read all the notices. And, and um, luckily it was big enough. I didn't have to wear my glasses. And then I went, okay, I guess I need to detour and not go through there. <laughs> so it's clearly working. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. Yeah, so the idea is that the streets are still open, but we wanted to keep it to local traffic only. So if you're mm -hmm. heading in that direction, you're more than allowed to use the street as a vehicle. But we just wanted to try and divert some of the traffic that would just be using it to uh, cut through that little area and then really dedicate it to the walkers and cyclists. So when they're, instead of being cramped on the sidewalk, um, they could actually have an opportunity to step out into the road safely and maintain that two meters of physical distancing that is being recommended. I think that's important that you say about the physical distancing part, because when I first saw about these quiet streets, my first thought was, and I'm not even Canadian, was that there's going to be a lot of street hockey going on and it'd be a lot easier to call out a car and things like that's what I hear you guys do. So have you found in some of your pilot areas that the kids are using it not necessarily just to walk or ride their bike, but to, to play things like street hockey and that? Um, that's funny you bring that up. I had the same initial thought that maybe it would be a good opportunity to have that happen. And although I haven't seen it just yet, um, we have seen plenty of families, I think, feel more confident in taking their kids out on their bikes and um, even right. young, young children and using these streets and, and really feeling reassured that they can do so safely. So what else are you finding so far? Because how long has this been going on? Um, this was it's only been going on for about a month now. We only implemented it in late August. We are finding that, although I haven't, I don't have the statistics to back it up just yet, we started off with a baseline observation run. And just this right. week, are we go we're going to do some follow-up observations. So I, I can't speak fully on this just yet. But anecdotally, I have seen quite a few people out there and enjoying them. I really am excited to see what uh, our actual observations tell us. So are you going to do it all by your own personal observations or are you going to send a survey or something around to those neighbourhoods that have these quiet streets? Um, yes, we are uh, tracking the data in two ways. We have uh, two different surveys that we are administering. Um, one is a residence survey. So each uh, household that is located on a quiet street will be receiving a survey where they can express their uh, opinions and thoughts and give us some feedback to their experience of actually living on these quiet streets and how that has impacted their day-to-day -day lives, basically. And then a second survey is being offered to those who are using these quiet streets. It's called the User Experience Survey. And mm -hmm. we're looking for opinions and thoughts from the users on how they are enjoying it, whether they feel safe, um, whether these quiet streets make them feel more comfortable in getting out and enjoying uh, active transportation, and then also leaving them an opportunity to give any feedback on what could be better and uh, if they'd like to see this continued in the future.
Well, that was going to be my question. Is this just for during the pandemic or are you thinking of trying or is the city thinking that maybe this is something they can continue? Initially, this is a pilot project just for the pandemic. It is running from late August to mid-November. Now, with that being said, if um, if it's enjoyed by many people, uh, it will be brought forth to the city. Our results are going to be brought forth to the city and hopefully we can um, get it started up again in, in the spring. That's great. Well, it's interesting, though, because when you're talking, I mean, for both of you, actually, uh, you know, Stefan with your quiet streets, but then Claire with your transport, it'd be interesting to see what happens in Kingston, because I know Kingston now have a few more, like what I call cycle paths, mm-hmm. to keep the cyclists away from the main cars, even though they're still pretty close. And I'm just wondering, with, with both sort of projects, will this um, be an impetus for the city to try and look at more areas of how we can get residents out cycling and walking in a safe environment? So looking at both the transport side of it and the activity side of it. Yeah, it's been a really interesting time just to, for cities like across the world to see how these kind of temporary like pilot projects can become more permanent. There's been a really big mm. talk about this idea of rebalancing streets. So kind of looking at how all of our, so many of our streets are dominated by cars. So kind of shifting the focus to having pedestrians, cyclists, transit take up more space and have a bit more of an equal balance. So it'll be interesting to see like how many of these interventions will be longer lasting and just how public attitudes could change. Like we come from a very car dependent culture. So kind of, it's an interesting chance to see if that'll shift and if we'll be more likely to use more sustainable modes in the future as well. Yeah, because I think the interesting part there as well is that, you know, King, I'm, and I'm talking about Kingston here, Kingston's getting a lot of young families. Yeah. And having the kids being able to go out and play in a safe area, I'm not saying kids should be always playing on the road, but at least they know the, the traffic is quieter, may be a bit more reassuring for parents. For sure. And that's a huge push for getting more kids to be walking and biking to school. So interventions like the slow streets, the quiet streets program could be a huge thing for kind of like gaining that confidence in road safety and letting kids walk to school again. So do you think the two of you with with the two projects that you're both working on, how how is that going to be given to the city? Is it just from a report or are they are they asking, can you come in and actually talk to our city councillors and things with some suggestions? I'll take the lead on this one. So yeah, go ahead. Yes, we are going to be giving them, I, I think it will be some form of a write-up in terms of our observations and our data collected from these surveys. And I think that we will be able to speak with some of the councillors from telling them about our experiences. The four councillors in the area that we have implemented these quiet streets, they were a part of our initial consultations and each of them had shown support for it. In fact, it was unanimously supported by all of the councillors. So hopefully that's a good sign of things to come for active transportation in the city. That's terrific. And even with the stuff that you're doing, Claire, I'm sure the city transport office is, is paying some attention to that too. Yeah, yeah, hopefully. We're kind of taking a bit of a broader focus for our research. Mm -hmm. Um, We submitted an article to Plan Canada. It's a magazine for 
uh, urban planners across the country. So we're hoping that'll be published and right. kind of some general suggestions that we hope to implement that aren't just focused on one particular place. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, I mean, you both are doing some really important projects there for, for everyone living in, in urban areas. So thank you very much for putting your hand, well, I don't know if you put your hand up, but anyway, <laughs> taking on those two projects with your, your supervisors. So it's good for all of us. And I really do appreciate you explaining to us both those sides. So thank you very much and, and best of luck with all of it. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much for having us. No worries at all. So keep it going um, because unfortunately COVID's here for a bit. So we need to do what we can to, I guess, make things economical, but also safe for all of us. So thank you very much for that. Yeah, of course. So that's it, everyone. A Another week of Grad Chat sadly comes to an end. So don't forget, you can download the show tomorrow from either iTunes, Google Podcasts or Stitcher. Just type in Grad Chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. Oh,